0: in your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for praying with me. You can have a seat. And thanks team for leading us. Um, I just realized one of the cool things about having a, a wedding. We had this amazing uh, here yesterday that took place in the facility. Uh, we have this amazing um, crack commando crew that like goes through and flips everything over and you walk in Sunday morning and you would never know there was a wedding here except one detail I noticed got missed and I noticed it like three and a half minutes ago when I started praying and that is the little clicker I normally used to advance my slides is not here <laughs> I am powerpointless this morning and that is a good thing or a bad thing I will leave it to you to figure that out maybe you can reserve judgment till the end of the sermon. If you think it was a good thing, we will celebrate the Lord's faithfulness together. If you think it was a bad thing, keep it to yourself. I don't care, okay? No. I'm kidding. I do want to encourage you to turn your Bibles to First John if you have them. Uh, If not, feel free to use the Bible in the rack in the pew in front of you this morning. As we do continue our ongoing series through this book, we at least have a cool graphic up on the screen, and I've got somebody hunting for my clicker right now. It may materialize. We will see how this goes. Uh, They always tell you when you're a speaker not to draw attention to the little distractions, which I completely just totally violated, so this is off to a great start. now we're just going to keep going, because I don't know how to move on from that. Uh, the, the whole point of this morning, really, in this passage, Ah, <laughs> uh, man, I don't know what's going to happen in starting in July when I lose my clicker. We're going to be in a world of hurt. Thank you, Draith. Thank you, Jordan. Appreciate you guys. Somebody's out there trying to make me look good. You guys work hard at it. Um, The whole point of this passage really this morning that we run into is to call our attention to the fact that uh, as Christian people in the world, we're at war. And we're going to talk about what that means and why that's important and what we're supposed to do about it and how that's a a good and encouraging thing, not a discouraging thing. We'll get into all that here in just a second. But as I was thinking about this this morning, it it occurred to me, uh, based on the context of what we're reading, that in a war, sometimes information... Is as potent a weapon as bullets and bombs. If you know anything about wars, this is true actually in the modern world too, but it has been true all throughout the history of warfare. Wars are often fought as much with information and misinformation as they are fought with swords and bullets and bombs. Um, both are typical. Uh, I was reading recently some scenes and episodes uh, of the American Revolutionary War and stumbled across an interesting story of an unsung hero. There were many of them, as there are in any major event like that, Uh, some uh, men and and some women as well, whose names we probably really don't know, but they were instrumental at different points in the Revolutionary War. Uh, One of them was a slave by the name of James Armistead. Uh, He was an African American slave, and he served voluntarily as a spy for the joint American and French forces uh, against the British. Now, to my knowledge, he never toted a musket or fired a shot, uh, but he actually ended up playing an instrumental role late in the Revolutionary War effort. He volunteered, as I said, to be a spy. What they did initially was, at the behest of uh, General Washington and the French generals, uh, he posed as an escaped slave. And he took with him across enemy lines a forged letter from George Washington to thousands of reinforcement troops, um, I believe in the east of Pennsylvania, I can't remember where it was, that's less important, Uh, telling them to get ready for this big attack that, that the British knew was coming. Here's the thing the troops didn't exist. There were no reinforcements. It was a deliberate attempt to make the British think the American forces were stronger. And so what they did was they smeared it with mud, and Armstead took this letter, claimed that he escaped as a slave, hated his American uh, captors and the French, uh, found this letter on the journey, and he passed it off as real. And so now it's the moment of truth. The British General Cornwallis, is he going to believe him or not? If there's sufficient evidence that he was lying and he was a spy, he could actually be hanged. This guy took on great personal risk. Um, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on whether you're American or British, I suppose. We love our British friends these days. It was a little different back then. <laughs> uh, Cornwallis believed Armistead, believed his story, chose to believe that the letter was true, And that influenced what the British chose to do and not do, allowing the Americans and the French to get in better position. It actually went on from there. They not only accepted this one instance of false information. But uh, Armistead was later able to collect vast amounts of information on British strategy because now, thinking that he was on their side, he would be there in the British camps and many of the uh, British colonels and generals would talk openly with one another in his presence about their strategy. And he's taking notes the whole time. They actually um, recruited him to spy for the British against the Americans thinking, you hate these guys so much, but you can get behind their lines and pass yourself off as, you know, a normal American slave. You can just do your thing and collect information for us. Are you in? He's like, I'm in. I'm with you guys. And so he allowed the British to recruit him as a British spy, not knowing the whole time that he was actually spying on the British for the Americans. And so... He was not only able to collect vast amounts of information on British strategy, but under the guise of spying for them, he got to go back across American lines and give it to the American and the French generals and let them know exactly what the British were doing. Both the false information he planted with the British and the real information he got from them to the French and the Americans contributed significantly to the strategy that led to the unfolding of the Battle of Yorktown And if you know anything about the American Revolutionary War, that was the battle that effectively ended the Revolutionary War once and for all when Cornwallis surrendered and the revolution was effectively over. You probably never heard James Armistead's name. I hadn't until this week, and I studied American history in college. But the point is, though unsung, uh, as a hero, he demonstrated the fact that wars are often fought and won as much by information and misinformation as they are by bullets and bombs. You see, when you're facing an uncertain future, deciding who and what you're going to listen to is vital. It's absolutely vital. And the same thing turns out to be true in our Christian life. That's the point of this passage in 1 John chapter 4 this morning. As we continue this series through this book of 1 John, um, we hit a a point last week, you may recall if you were with us, where John had sort of summarized everything he said up to that point and landed the plane, giving us great confidence and telling us how to have confidence as Christians. And and we pointed out he could have really ended the book right there. It finishes nicely, but he's not done yet. What he's going to do in the remaining two chapters, four and five, is he's going to go back to each of his main three points that he's been hitting over and over again and hit them all one last time, nice, and strong and he's going to start this morning by hitting this point of um the fact that the the gospel as it's distinguished ooh, cool and now that i got it all back it's not working so that's what happens when you call attention to something and then it doesn't work and that's yeah whatever we're just gonna (laughs) we're just moving on we're good okay you guys like that you don't mind looking at that for the next 20 minutes okay we're good all right here we go um John comes back to this key point that if you want to know the real gospel from the counterfeits, it's true to the original. It produces obedience. And what's the third one? What else does it produce, church? Tell me. Ooh, so said it. You're right. Say it bold. Say it loud. Love for the brothers. One, two, three. Love for the brothers. There it is. That's the true gospel. Now he's going to go back to that first one this morning and say, we're going to get one more hit on one more strong look at this idea that the the authentic gospel that can produce great confidence in your faith is the one that is true to the original. If you're in 1 John chapter 4, we're going to look at verse 1. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is is not from god this is the spirit of the antichrist whom you heard was coming in uh whom you heard was coming and now is in the world already all right first question you run into when you read a passage like this he says don't believe every spirit but test the spirits question who the blazes is he talking about who what are the spirits You and I, as Christian people, are supposed to test and differentiate false from true. Is he talking about actual spirits? Is he talking about Satan, angels, demons? Or is he talking about people after all he says in the second half of verse one? You gotta test these spirits because for many false prophets have gone out in the world. Well, we know who false prophets are. They're people. They're teachers, they're people who say thus says the Lord and what they're saying God says is not actually what God says. They're, they're false prophets. And so is he talking about people or is he talking about actual spirits? What do we make of this? Ultimately, the spirits that he's talking about are literal spirits. Uh, these are demons, we would call them. But here's the thing. They are demons who are ultimately behind the false teaching about Jesus that was being spread around the first century in John's day when this was written. That's ultimately what he's driving us to think about. He's talking about actual angelic beings, demons who are behind the teaching of these false prophets that are spreading uh, misinformation about who Jesus is. Now, we know that in part, not only because of the immediate context here, but because we've already seen him back in chapter 2. You can flip back there for just a second. Talk about this in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. We looked at this just a few Sundays ago. Children, he said there, it is the last hour, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists, plural, have already come. That's how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, so that might be plain that they're not from our camp. We talked there about how John was talking about these false teachers, these false prophets, these ideas about Jesus that are being spread by people and he calls them antichrists, the spirit of the ultimate one who is against Christ. That's what antichrist means. It's a deliberate effort to spread misinformation about who Jesus is and how to have a relationship with him as a way of pulling people away from the gospel that Jesus is trying to spread. Jesus is spreading the gospel. They're spreading a false gospel. They're working against the ministry of Jesus. Now, in today's passage, he simply points out the fact that there are ultimately demonic spirits behind those false teachers. Whether those false teachers are aware of it or not, that's the real enemy. They are anti Christ. They're fighting the spread of his kingdom, not with bullets and bombs, but with misinformation and deception. This is actually not a new idea in the New Testament. The Bible talks about this kind of thing regularly. Uh, maybe nowhere more clearly than Revelation chapter 13, which pictures Satan working in the world primarily through two intermediaries. And in the vivid apocalyptic imagery of that chapter of Scripture, the first intermediary is pictured as this strong, powerful beast that attacks people and uses violence and power to subdue them. And you see examples of this in in some, for instance, Muslim-majority countries, even today, where it is literally illegal to convert from Islam to Christianity. Uh, Many countries in the world today, that's true, Um, And if you do convert from Islam to Christianity, or usually any other religion, but it's often Christianity, you can not only be punishable by fines or imprisonment, you may be subject to personal violence, and in some cases, even execution, either at the behest of the legal authorities, or sometimes at the behest of your own family as an honor killing, because they believe you've dishonored their prophet. You try to be a Christian in a context like that, and you have an idea of the power of violence that can sometimes be directed against the spread of the gospel. That's true, and that's in the world today, but it's not everywhere, is it? There's a second intermediary, Revelation 13, talks about Satan working through, and this one is not pictured so much as a violent beast. He's pictured more as a smooth-talking, lying false prophet. He sets aside the idea of uh, violence, usually, in favor of deception and misinformation to draw people away from the genuine gospel. You don't even have to go to Revelation to see this. Jesus talked openly about this. Matthew chapter 24, he said, false Christs, false messiahs, and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. What's the point of all this? Very simply this. We have three points in the sermon this morning. This is the first one. We're at war. That's point number one. We're at war. That's, that's what the Bible's trying to tell us. If you're a Christian, well, even if you're not, definitely if you're a Christian, the Bible wants us to understand we are at war. The war is spiritual, but it is real, and it influences the thoughts, messages, and actions of real people in the real world. We have an enemy. Not only do we have an enemy, we have an enemy that's not holding back he is not cautious. He is not calculating. He is not conservative in his opposition. That's why Jesus says he is going to do all these great things so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Like he is swinging for the fences. That's our enemy. He is all in. It's a last-ditch, desperate attempt to do as much damage to the spread of the gospel in this world as possible. He's not only intelligent and powerful, especially when compared with us, he is highly motivated, and he is holding nothing back. That's the message that the Bible wants us to understand, which leads to an important question. As a Christian, do I realize we're at war? do we realize we're at war? In the West, we tend to face much more of that second kind of false prophet, deceptive thing rather than this, like, you're going to get arrested or beaten if you become a Christian kind of thing. That's thankfully pretty foreign to our experience. But nevertheless, John's focusing on this second one, this idea of deception and false teaching, and his message is apropos. By the way, in the West, in America... We also have a tendency to deny the reality of the spiritual, don't we? We're all materialists at heart if we're Americans. Capital M. I don't mean like greedy for money materialists. I mean like we believe that the physical world is all that there really is. Isn't that true? I can imagine for the last five minutes we've been talking about the reality of being at war. Be honest. Is there something within you that goes, okay, how weird is this going to get this morning? Right? I mean... Most of us are Christian people. We're in a church. It's okay to talk about God and the reality of the spiritual. That's not a weird topic, at least not here. But how weird is this going to get? Maybe some of you are a little uncomfortable. Demons running around all over the place, whispering lies into our ears. What are we supposed to make of that? Like, really? Is that really the case? C.S. Lewis, in his typically brilliant uh, way, commented on this point in the Screwtape Letters, Uh, a book I highly recommend, by the way, as long as you understand it's a work of fiction, not theology. (laughs) Um, What it is is incredibly insightful in, in terms of how Christians in Western societies like ours can be manipulated and led astray by forces we're often not aware of. Lewis put it this way. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, human beings, can fall about the devils, meaning demons. Two errors. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other error is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Here's where Lewis is great. He says, They themselves are equally pleased by both errors, and they hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight. That is so good. That is so insightful. Satan couldn't care less if we don't believe he exists or if we're so consumed with his existence that we're focusing more on him than on our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Either way, he's got a leg up. He's got a leg up. We've probably all seen these extremes in actions. We've seen Christians sometimes whole churches who see a demon behind every rock and tree, a manipulative ploy of the enemy behind every sneeze and sniffle. I've got a demon. You may just have the flu. Honestly, I mean, maybe that's all there is to it. On the other hand, we've probably also seen those who are willing to acknowledge that God exists, but that's about it, right? (laughs) I mean, let's just stop with any other talk of Satan, angels, demons. I mean, that just gets too weird. Better to just have nothing to do with that because we want to avoid those crazies over there that see a demon behind every rock and tree. But you see, it's possible, I think, for us to be a formal spiritualist but a functional materialist. A formal spiritualist, but a functional materialist. All I mean by that is simply, I I say, which most of us would as Christians, I believe in the reality of the spiritual world. If you're a Christian, you do by by definition, because you believe God is there. If you don't believe in God, you're not a Christian. So if I'm a Christian, of course I believe in God. So yes, I believe in the reality of the spiritual world. I believe that the spiritual exists. That's what I say I believe formally. But functionally, like when I live my life day in, day out, When I make my decisions and I go about setting my goals, I live as if getting married and having a family and building a career and securing a retirement and enjoying good things in life are what life is all about. And I see those decisions more as a result of um, choices I have to make based on the environment around me, which is merely the result of other people's decisions. And God and the enemy are often nowhere in that. Maybe I pray to God and ask for wisdom, but that's about it. That's about it. I don't see anyone else of a spiritual nature involved. We often take good things, family, career, retirement, and we make them ultimate things. That's the stuff of life because we've lost sight of the ultimate thing. We've lost sight of the fact that there's a war going on. We're at war and our lives as Christians are merely the latest chapter in a whole volume of God's effort to redeem this world and all its people for his glory and an enemy that is in active, sold-out opposition to that. You see, the problem with if we don't realize we're at war is that we let our guard down. We become complacent. We become vulnerable to subtle deceptions because we're not looking for them. In the same way that Cornwallis fell for that letter and that ploy of the runaway slave, although he knew it was possible, it was a fake. He ultimately believed it was credible. He let his guard down. He got duped. He paid for it. I'll just finish this first point by asking this question. Christian, how would it affect your thinking and planning like this afternoon, this week, if you knew you were facing an active, extremely intelligent and totally sold out enemy who is out to lead you astray? Would that have any impact? Would that change anything? I think it would for me because I don't often take that into account. This paragraph that we're looking at opens with this call to be alert to our enemy. But as we leave that first point, I want to point out that this is a call to be alert. It's not a call to be paranoid, because the middle of this paragraph, the very next point, is here to tell us that Satan's tactics can be, and actually already have been, as we'll see in a minute, overcome. They can be, and they have been, overcome in verses 2 and 3 he says by this you know the spirit of God now there's right away there's the good news he's like okay there's this enemy there's this effort to deceive okay well that sounds kind of intense or scary if I believe that's true what am I supposed to do about it great news he's like here's what you do I'm going to show you the answer key right now I'm going to give you the answer to the test so that you can have it and you can be confident as you move forward in life Here's how you know whether you're listening to the Spirit of God or a false spirit. And then he goes on and explains, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now, that sounds pretty simple until we start to ask, okay, what do you mean by that? Which is the right question. That's the next question to ask. He says, here's the deal. Any spirit, any prophet, any Bible teacher, any religion, any worldview, any message that says Jesus Christ is the Messiah and has come in the flesh, hey, that's God. Anybody that doesn't confess Jesus isn't telling you the truth as it's revealed in the Bible. It's not true to the original. Okay, well, fine. But what does that mean? Is that just words? After all, how many people in this world, in our own country, say, I believe in Jesus. I follow Jesus. I'm all about Jesus. Is that it? They just confess Jesus. Is that what John means? Well, of course, that's not what he means. He means more than that. He's, He's using a little bit of jargon here. He's summarizing in a phrase a really important idea. Why doesn't he spell the idea out? Because he already spelled it out earlier in the book. What he's got in mind here is not just using words like I I pray in Jesus' name or I believe in Jesus or I say Jesus is my Savior. There's a lot of cults that will use that same kind of language and they're not telling the truth. No, what he's talking about is these first century false teachers who were also saying that kind of thing too, but they they were peddling a false gospel. And He says, here's how you can tell the difference. The genuine gospel is true to the original. Now, the original gospel has been spelled out numerous times in the Bible sometimes at great length, like the entire first half of the book of Romans, eight chapters, <laughs> and sometimes as short as a single sentence. John, in the book of 1 John, spelled it out in four verses earlier in the book. And these are the four verses I exhorted us to memorize last Sunday. Chapter 1, verse 9, to chapter 2, verse 2. Four verses of Scripture, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Those four verses of Scripture are the Apostle John's summary of the essence of what the real original gospel is all about. I hope you've been reading them. I hope you've been working on them. I want to once again encourage and exhort you to memorize them because that's the, the doctrinal core of this whole book. Everything keeps going back to that, and he's pointing back to it even now when he talks about what it means to confess Jesus. From those four verses, in fact, let me encourage you to flip a page to your left if you have to, and go back and look at them briefly, because we we want to understand what he's getting at here. He's saying this is the way you tell the true from counterfeits. So, what is the true? Let's take a moment and look at it. This is how to defeat the deception. You know what the true is. We learn four important things from these verses. We learn who Jesus is. We learn what Jesus does. We learn what we're supposed to do, and we learn the results. Those four things are all contained in these verses. First of all, who Jesus is, chapter 2, verse 1. Beloved, uh, sorry, little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you might not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He just told us that's who Jesus is. By the way, quick aside, remember every time you see in the Bible Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name it reads that way, but Christ is a title, it's not a name. Jesus Christ is short for Jesus the Christ, we just usually drop the the out, and the word Christ was the way in the first century they just uh, translated the old Hebrew word Messiah, it means the long-promised Savior from God who would save us from our sins. Now, that's a jawbreaker. That's why we just say Jesus Christ. But it, it helps in, in a passage like this to remember, every time you see Jesus Christ, Jesus, the long-promised Messiah who would save us from our sins, okay? If you can like, mentally fill that in, it can help. So who is Jesus, the Messiah who is long-promised? Well, he is the righteous one, and he is our advocate. That's what we're told. That's the first thing. Jesus is our righteous advocate. Righteous meaning he's righteous, I'm not. Christianity is all about Me being a sinner, not improving beyond my sinfulness so that I become a little less sinful and become a better person. Jesus is the righteous one. I am not. I bring nothing to the table, and every genuine Christian is delighted to admit it, at least in our best moments. Jesus is righteous and lives righteously for me, which means that he alone is my advocate. He's my defense as I stand guilty before God the Father. He is the one um, who, who argues that I should be accepted by the Father, not myself, not my good intentions, not enough of my acts of charity and kindness balanced against my bad acts to kind of weigh it all out. There is nothing, I have nothing to say as I'm sitting there, as it were, in court before God the judge. My defense attorney, Jesus, argues in my place. I have nothing to contribute to this conversation. I have no right to speak. He does, and he speaks for me. That's where the gospel starts. Jesus is our righteous advocate. That's who he is. Secondly, what does he do? Verse, uh, the rest of verse two. He himself, sorry, beginning of verse two, chapter two, verse two, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the sins of the whole world. We talked about this big Bible word, propitiation, a few weeks ago. It means a sacrifice that turns away Wrath. Because he is righteous, he died on the cross in my place. That paid the penalty for my sins. As a result, my debt is paid if I trust Jesus, and therefore I can now relate to God rightly, not only because he's advocating for me, but because he paid for me. Who is he? My righteous advocate. What does he do? He pays my price. That's what the cross is all about. Thirdly, what am I supposed to do? That's where we back up and go back to chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins... If we confess our sins, there it is. That's my role. Confession. And improvement, right? Confession. And then promising to try harder. Confession. Can I stay in that place of saying, Jesus, I bring nothing to the table? This is all about you. I admit you're right when you say I'm wrong. And I'm wrong in this way and in that way. I'm admitting it. Please forgive me. That's confession. That's what the Bible calls repentance. I'm laying that all before you. Would you take it away from me? Again, the real gospel is not about trying to become better, it is about trying to depend on Jesus who has paid our debt for us. Who Jesus is? A righteous advocate. What does he do? Propitiating sacrifice. What do I do? I confess. Last but not least, what happens to me? The rest of verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He forgives us. The barrier between me and God is now removed. I can be in right relationship with Him again as a daughter, as a son. But He doesn't just stop there. Rather than relating to me now not as a rebel who deserves punishment but as a son or a daughter who deserves love, Not only relating to me that way on the outside, as it were, he also changes me on the inside. The Bible says he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. The Holy Spirit moves in, and because genuine confession of sin is necessarily a process of yielding and ceding control of my life to the Spirit of God, he breaks the chains of sin and he begins to weaken its grip on me, and I actually start to become a more righteous person by his power, not mine. That's the promise. That's the promise. here's why I take a few minutes to walk through that again. Many of you know this. Many of you have listened to me for the last few minutes and said, yeah, 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 I got that. But I just want to point out two things, two reasons to walk through it again. First of all, this, these four things are the blazing hot center of the gospel of Jesus. There's so much more to the Christian life. There's so much more the Bible teaches, but it all centers on this reality if I don't have this I don't have anything else who Jesus is what he does what I do and what happens to me that is the blazing hot center of the gospel secondly we may know it do we know it well enough to live it to renew ourselves in it day in day out and by God's grace explain it to other people in words that they can understand that's our calling So our first point was we're at war. The second point is we've been given the tools to defeat the deception. We know what the real gospel is. He laid it out for us very clearly in these verses. So Christian, how would your life look different this afternoon if you and I were to focus relentlessly on those truths for the first time, for the 10,000th time? How would that change where I am today? That leads us to our third and final point this morning. And that is the encouragement to persevere. He's, he started the paragraph with this kind of warning that we're at war. He supplied the, the confidence that we know the truth and we could defeat deception. And now in verses 4 to 6, he gives us great confidence as we live in this world and fight this battle for Christ. Little children, verse 4, you are from God and have overcome them. That is those spirits we were talking about earlier. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I think there's something interesting in verses 5 and 6. It almost sounds a little bit like a weird cult. But we'll read it, see what you think, and see what we can make of this. Verse 5. They, these false spirits, are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, You can talk to some cultic religions and they'll tell you, listen to our message, don't listen to anybody else. We're the only ones you can trust. Is that what John just said? Is that what the Bible teaches? Well, not quite. And the differences are pretty important. First of all, there's no desire to have mind control here. What John is talking about is like, not how somebody comes to believe, it's like after you've believed. You know what he's really doing? Here's the bottom line. What he's doing in these verses is he's talking to a bunch of Christians and he's saying to them, he's trying to get them to think about like, guys, why do you look at the gospel of Jesus and understand it to be true and beautiful? And somebody else looks at it and says it's stupid and they walk away and they want to believe something else. Why is that? He says, I'm going to tell you. You're of God, they're of the world. You know another way of saying that? I'll tell you why you believe the gospel. Because God opened your eyes. And guess what? That's it. That's the only reason. That's the only explanation for why a selfish sinner like me could come to see the lordship of Jesus Christ as true and beautiful and something to give my life to. I can only come to see that if God opens my eyes, if I am of him, if he has regenerated my life and given me the gift of faith. It's not because I'm smarter than that other person. It's not because I was raised the right way and they weren't. It's not because I've reflected more on it than them or I'm more spiritual or anything of the sort. There's only one difference that explains why I've baked my life in the gospel and somebody else hasn't. The mercy of God in my life. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with him. And that's John's point. And he tells us, take great confidence in that. If you go back to verse four, he says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. These spirits. Now, this is, this is interesting. What does he mean by that? He started this paragraph with this kind of like heavy warning. Hey, war! War! war. Hey, realize that, right? You know, wake up. Ooh, this is scary, right? And he's like, No, not really. I mean, you need to understand it. You need to take it seriously. This is not a game, but you don't need to be scared by it. Why? Because you have overcome them already. Two quick points here. What does it mean that they've overcome, and why does he talk about it in the past tense, if it's an ongoing war? First of all, what does it mean to overcome? In in, in what sense have John's first century Christian readers overcome these demonic forces that are fueling false ideas about the gospel? Does it mean that first century Christians were just so in touch with God that they could just Bind Satan in Jesus' name, and they put their their proverbial boot on his neck, and they just defeated demons and had lots of victory and never experienced sin or temptation and had all sorts of wonderful supernatural victory and were like spiritual super people. Not in the slightest. Not in the slightest. Clearly, it doesn't mean that. We know that didn't happen. That's why the Bible's constantly exhorting Christians to repent of sin and continue to fight that good fight of faith. No, the, the overcoming isn't any kind of triumphalist defeat as if like, I've somehow overpowered Satan because my faith is so strong, like, hey, when, when this Christian walks down the hallway, Satan gets scared because I'm so awesome, right? That's not the sense in which Christians overcome evil. Well, then what sense is it? I think it's the sense of, that you, can, you get right from the context of this passage. What is the battle that he's talking about? We've already seen it. It's the battle of false information and deception. And he's saying, you overcame that. In other words, what he's telling them is, you guys didn't get duped. Congratulations. And that's why he goes on and he settles the fact that, by the way, that has nothing to do with you. That's all God's credit. <laughs> so don't get too full of yourselves. But you see what he's saying? These... Spirits, we're supposed to test, these false preachers are telling us wrong things about Jesus and you didn't fall for it. You've banked your lives on the real gospel. So you've already won. You didn't get taken in. You overcame their effort to pull the wool over your eyes. When it says you've overcome, make a note in your margin or or, or on your notes, that means they came to believe the true gospel. They didn't fall for a fake. Which is also, by the way, why it's in the past tense. Because he's writing, as we've seen many times through this study, to Christians. People who already believe and are building their lives on the gospel. Which leads to one last important observation. It is sort of in the past tense, but not quite. Not quite. It is in the past tense, but the way this is worded, it was originally written in the Greek language in the first century. It's been translated for us into English so we can read it. The way that the Greek works there, he uses a very specific construction that basically says this is something that happened in the past, but it's not over and done. Because it happened in the past, it has forever changed the present and the future. That's specifically what he means. We talk this way all the time, even in modern life, right? For example, a little over a month from now, uh, Amy and I will celebrate our 25th anniversary. Um, Yay. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't looking for applause. Thank you. But it's awesome. You should clap for her. She had to live with me for 25 years. Um, no, seriously. Yes. Everybody's like, now we're really happy. Right. So I could say, coming up to our anniversary, hey, 25 years ago, Amy and I were married. Past tense. It's true. We haven't had more than one wedding. <laughs> we, we don't get married every day, month by month, you know, for years and years. That's not how it works. But of course, when I say that, we all immediately realize I'm not just talking about something in the past as if it's all in the past. Like, oh yeah, we did that once. It was nice. Went there, got the t-shirt, whatever, but we've moved on. It doesn't matter anymore. It's It's just the opposite. What I'm saying is we got married, but that forever changed our lives. It forever affected our relationship. We are still under the reality of what changed that day. We are still married. We're celebrating it every year. It's a past event that has changed the present and the future. That's what John says about the salvation of his first century Readers, you weren't duped. You saw the real gospel. You're building your life on it, and that is continuing to affect you now. So when he says you have overcome them, he's basically saying, hey, there's a fight here. There, there's, we're at war, but understand, God opened your eyes. You're already on the winning side in that sense, and you are still living in that victory. You know the truth from error, so hold on to it. And maybe most importantly, continue to build your life on it. Continue to build your life on it. No matter what the future holds, if you're a Christian, we need to know that we're at war with a deceiver. The deception can be overcome because, an often quoted phrase, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world specific context of that god came and opened your eyes it's the only reason any one of us can hope for heaven and because god chose to do that for me and he's done that for me and if i'm a christian that still remains true of me today i can have great confidence facing a future that i may not understand i may be confused about i may be worried that i may not get it all right god is not confused God is not surprised, and God has already demonstrated toward every Christian on the planet that he is with you in it because you wouldn't be with him at all if he wasn't. The credit for our salvation is all his. The Bible intends this to be a powerful source of encouragement for those who are walking with Jesus. Having begun the the paragraph on a note of, of warning, we're at war, he concludes it with a note of confidence We may never be personally strong enough or wise enough to overcome the deceptions of Satan. Satan can't hold a candle to God, not a candle. This is no light, dark balance between two equal forces. God is infinitely wiser and infinitely stronger for which we can be infinitely grateful and deeply confident. My brothers and sisters in Christ, What would it look like for you to take your eyes off your own plans, your own anxieties? Maybe your own guilt or shame and the ongoing battle with sin that exists in some of our lives our own determination to conquer it, or our own willingness to just settle for a mediocre Christianity, what would it look like for us to take our eyes off of those things and fix them firmly like today, new, on Jesus Christ, your righteous advocate and propitiating sacrifice, the one who offers forgiveness and cleansing. This is the gospel that we believed in for some of us months ago, for some of us decades ago, but that's not just a past event. It continues today. We renew ourselves daily in the reality of Christ, our king, our savior, our advocate, and our sacrifice. How can you renew yourself in the gospel this morning? Because the great news is, yeah, we're at war but the God of the universe has not only already defeated Satan, he has already blessed you by calling you to himself. If you're a Christian, be encouraged with that today. Continue to walk in that. If you're with us this morning and you're not quite sure what it means to be a Christian or you think you got it figured out, you're not really sure, you want to talk about it, we're available to do that. We would love to talk with you about that. Myself and a couple of our staff leaders and elders will be down here after the service. Uh, We just encourage you to come down We'd love to talk with you or pray with you because Christ is offering everything to us. Eternity hangs in the balance, but the good news is life can be had. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come to you in incredible joy and gratitude for who you are and what you've done. God, I stand here and find this an easy sermon to preach and a harder one to live because I know in my head we are at war and I know that I'm not immune to being led astray, living for myself. I prove it every week. And so, Father God, we need you. I need you. I pray that you would find us this morning a people happy, delighted to admit and acknowledge once again that we are broken and we are bent towards sin, but we have a greater Savior than even our sin. And we rally around as a group of redeemed people whom you are changing and whom you have forgiven to once again confess our sins, renew ourselves in your grace, and thank you for your presence in our life that gives us the ability and even the desire to do any of that for our good and for your glory. Be glorified in the praise of an incredibly grateful people as we sing to you now. This we pray in Christ's name, amen.